Why, hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this special episode. We have a guest, and we'll uh, introduce him in a minute, or he'll introduce himself. He's actually a returning guest, and so we're pleased to have you back, Kemper. But I'm C.R. Wiley, I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've done a number of things, including write some books. That's enough about me. How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. Uh, teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and am writing a bunch of things, and just slipped an article out. The All other right. day, I felt very happy about it. <laughs> great, great, great. <laughs> and, uh, right. and so, uh, yeah, other than that, yeah, I, my nose is usually in the books or, or with a pen. <laughs> Got it. Okay, Glenn. Then why don't you, Glenn, uh, uh, kick it over to Kemper. Right. I'm Glenn Sunshine, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. And I've said before, I have to say both of those things because it's in my contract. Uh, I'm also a contracts. I'm also a, uh, a freelance speaker and teacher and such. Um, and our guest today is Kemper Crabb, who we had on once before, gosh, earlier this year, I guess it was. So, Kemper, why don't you introduce yourself? Then I'll I'll talk about our topic. Okay, um, I help lead a church in Katy, Texas, outside of Houston. I teach uh, humane letters in a. To the tenth grade in a in a classical education school, and I do music. That's pretty much what I do. Those three things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people mostly who aren't down in Houston know you for the music. Uh, that's true. That is true. That is true. Mostly. <laughs> yeah. Well, part part of Kemper's background is uh, medieval studies, and. Uh, some of his interests um, made me think that uh, this would be a good topic to bring him in on. We're going to talk about what I'm calling biblical cryptids. Um, and this we're doing this at the risk of stepping on the toes of haunted cosmos, but um, tough. We're going to do it anyway. Um, now, what do I mean by biblical cryptids? A, a cryptid is a semi-legendary, mythical, folkloric, whatever kind of critter uh, like like a Bigfoot or something along those lines. And as it turns out, uh, there are a number of references in Scripture that are remarkably similar or that at least overlap quite a bit with what we would think of as cryptids. So um, sometimes our modern translations translate these out of the text uh, but when you read, for example, King James, you'll see a number of them. Now, I would argue that King James got some of them wrong. But overall, um, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence in Scripture for things that don't fit into our nice, neat categories. And so um, with that, I want to uh, 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 toss it over to Kemper. So, Kemper, you've, you've looked into a lot of this. Um, why don't you pick one and we'll start there? All right. Um you know, to me, one of the most interesting ones uh, in Isaiah, uh, let's see, where is it, 34, uh, you've got a, a passage uh, in verse 14, by the way. You've got a passage that mentions uh, the Sair, and uh, Sair is where we get our word Seder from. Uh, King James translates that as Seder. Um, most of the other modern translations don't. They they try to uh, come up with something. I mean, everything from he goat to to whatever um, you know that's that's kind of like that. But but 
that was not what the word originally meant. It wasn't what the word meant to the Hebrews. Um, generally speaking, the early church and the medieval church uh, took quite seriously words like that. And uh, of course, they weren't reductionists. The Enlightenment hadn't happened in the West yet. So they didn't have a problem seeing the world uh, containing such creatures as that. And I mean, I, I think probably most Westerners would think of uh, would think of a, a satyr as sort of being like uh, the god Pan, or uh, or one of those uh, half goat, half human people like that. And, and there are other places in Scripture where it talks about uh, where it talks about beast men. You know, is actually the kind of terminology that's used there, and so forth. And uh, you know, the the People are normally embarrassed. Uh, I, I can only assume that it's embarrassment that causes translators to not, you know, translate those words for what they say. I know that, uh, you know, there's there's normally a, a conflict amongst evangelicals of whatever stripe. Uh, they don't want to, you know. I mean, I, I, they probably would say that they don't they don't want to embarrass God by <laughs> including stuff that's involved like that. But generally, I think it's probably they don't want to embarrass themselves, and if they're presenting the gospel, they, um, in the interest of making something uh, easier to accept by people who don't believe, uh, they they tend to gloss over stuff like that. Which, since the Enlightenment, has been sort of increasingly <clears throat> the way that not only the mainstream um, society but the church itself uh, has kind of kind of bought into this sort of uh, reductionistic camp. But uh, you know, the, it's it's these terms like uh, like satyr and so forth. Although different cultures call them slightly different things, they show up everywhere across the world. Um, yeah, <clears throat> you know, yeah, just and, so we just so we make sure that our listeners know what we're saying here. We're not saying satyr. We're just talking about the actual oh, right. mythologi <laughs> mythological. Because yeah. I bet you, and our audience, that's probably where people's minds went is, right. is yeah. to a term <laughs> that they already were familiar with. Yeah, S A T Y R. S A T Y R. That's exactly yes. right. And okay. uh, you know, so I, in my estimation, if Scripture says something, then our worldview should flow from that, rather than us trying to impose some yeah. alien. Along this line, you know, I live in Bigfoot country up here, you know, so there are lots of folks here who uh, believe in Bigfoot. It's, you know, obviously fun uh, in one respect. There's a coffee shop right down the sh street from me that's got Bigfoot as their mascot. On the other hand, you know, there are people who are pretty serious about it. I was at an event uh, for a film that was produced by Merkel Media. I've got a friend named Joseph Granda, and he's the producer of, of the, the, the film that, that was shown at this local theater called Shape of Shadows, which is about skinwalkers in, in the high desert, uh, I think, out in Utah. But anyway, uh, the at the event, the place was packed out, by the way. And uh, there was a... Um, podcaster who specializes in Bigfoot and Sasquatch, the Sasquatch Chronicles, I think it is. And the place was packed with people who had not only come to believe in Sasquatch, but claimed to have encountered him uh, in some way. Maybe they heard something in the woods or they saw something in, in the shadows like that. And the whole evening after the film, 
was like a revival meeting where people were giving their testimonies. <laughs> it was amazing. So uh, if we think that uh, this is too, uh, you know, beyond the pale uh, for lots of folks in the world, we're making a bad read uh, on things. Okay. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd actually like to sink into to the Sayer, uh, the Sater, a little bit more. Um, it turns out that the word... In modern translations, they usually translated in Isaiah 34 as well as in Isaiah 13, 21 right. as wild goats or something along those lines, hairy goats. Um, yeah. The root word <laughs> seems to be the word for hairy. But when you go to – no comments, okay? When, when you go to uh, Leviticus 17, 7, um, it says, so they shall no more slay their sacrifices for goat demons or satyrs, as it's often translated in that verse as goat demons, after whom they play the harlot. Or in Second Chronicles eleven fifteen, and he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat demons, the satyrs, um, and for the calves which he had made. So there are places where you can't translate it hairy goats or wild goats or anything like that. It's obvious that we're dealing with some kind of goat demon of some sort. But then when we get to Isaiah, in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, they say, well, no, it can't really be that. And so they they go with, with the other translation. I, and I, it seems to me that there's an assumption being made by the translators there that you can't actually have uh, well, Isaiah thirteen twenty one. but wild animals will lie down there. They're talking about Babylon after it's destroyed. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell and their satyrs will dance. I mean, the assumption is it's got to be wild goats because, well, satyrs don't really exist and they're not going to be dancing there. But actually, one of the things that you know about satyrs from all the folklore is they dance. Sure. That's yeah. right. <laughs> now, now the, the other interesting thing here is in Jerome's biography of, I believe it was Paul of Thebes, St. Antony is going to visit Paul of Thebes, and you have, he encounters a satyr-like creature. And according to Jerome, the satyr said, quote, I am a mortal being and one of those inhabitants of the desert whom the Gentiles, deluded by various forms of error, worship under the names of fauns, satyrs, and incubi. I am sent to represent my tribe. We pray you in our behalf to entreat the favor of your Lord and ours, who, we have learnt, came once to save the world and whose sound has gone forth into all the earth. So according to Jerome... Antony actually encountered one of these. Um, and then he goes on to say, let no one scruple to believe this incident. Its truth is supported by what took place when Constantine was on the throne, a matter of which the whole world was witness. For a man of that kind was brought alive to Alexandria and shown as a wonderful sight to the people. Afterwards, his lifeless body, to prevent its decay through the summer heat, was preserved in salt and brought to Antioch that the emperor may see it. So according to that's, that's, Jerome, talking about St. Antony, you actually have these things that exist. In this case, mortal creatures, not goat demons. Right. It's that's, it's interesting uh, with um, right. you know something I was reading about the the early church after the age of the initial martyrs right where spiritual battle took place 
in basically with the culture into which they were bringing the gospel. Once the the Christians were tolerated a bit more, you tended to see communities, of course, go out to the desert, the monastic. And a lot of people think that they were going out there to get away from the influence of the world, but they understood based on the long biblical legacy, that that's actually where the, the fight with evil really takes place. And so they, the movement to battle the, the demons, if you will, and the spiritual, they, basically they're taking, they're taking on the task of giving their life to confronting the battle right where it's raging, and that's the desert. And that's, of course, where you see a lot of these kinds of encounters in, in the kind of the, the monastic literature, especially the, the confrontation with, with what we would call strange beasts. Yeah, that's so uh, kind of uh, turned inside out today where, you know, if you want to get closer to God, what do you do? You go out to the hill country or out into the <laughs> wilderness. That's the idea, right? Uh, and that would be a, a worthwhile study to undertake. I mean, of course, Scripture does tell us that that the creation uh, proclaims the glory of God. But at the same time, this other thread that you're talking about, Thomas, just so evident if you have an eye for it and you can trace it throughout the, the scriptures uh, that, you know, you don't want to go out there. <laughs> that's, that's a dangerous place. <laughs> sure. Not just wild animals, but what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, history ends in a city. Right, you know, right. It doesn't, doesn't end in a wilderness. So, uh, so I can certainly see that. It's interesting, uh, Glenn, because uh, the experience that Athanasius uh, had always makes me think about, um, you know, and other liminal beings like fairies. Uh, mm -hmm. There are, there are, I don't know how many stories of fairies who would show up and accost a minister or some people and stuff, and they'd be weeping and saying. Uh, is there no redemption for us? Is there no salvation for us? Uh, did your Redeemer die for us as well? And so forth. And I mean, there's just like, I don't know how many stories, hundreds of stories like that. Most of them, for some reason, in the Norse country. But but even in England and other places, you, you read about stories about the, the fairies interacting like that. And it, and it you know kind of makes you wonder in the same way, uh, that the satyrs were, that they were, you know, real physical manifestations and so forth that Athanasius encountered. You know, what about these fairies? Because once again, every culture has some version of that, whether they call them the fae or not, or she or whatever. They they uh, they're everywhere across across human history. So yeah, I've got a I've got a marvelous book uh, titled. Um the Encyclopedia of Fairy, I think it is, by Carol Rose. And uh, she does a, a really great job of what you just talked about, Kemper, kind of documenting, you know, how this uh, is a universal phenomenon, not just... Because I think we associate fairies with Western Europe, right? I mean, it's sure. kind of... Good, but that's because we're descended from Western Europeans. <laughs> but, exactly. but there are people in other parts... Of, they didn't, like you said, call them fairies because that's wrapped up with our, our history. Yeah. But... But then they're the same sort of things. Like when we think about little people, the, the, the reference to little people, if I understand correctly, is not so much that they're diminutive in size, but they're, they're kind of like in between us and the great beings. So. That's what I'd understood as, as well. Now, there's an interesting book. Uh, 
this guy's last name was Evans Wentz, W-N-T-Z, called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And uh, in the early part of the last century, he walked all over England, Scotland, and Ireland and, and wrote down eyewitness accounts of people who had encounters with fairies. I mean, this book is like 900 pages long, hundreds and hundreds of accounts, and he only paid attention to the ones where people had actually said, no, I, I experienced this myself. You know, that wasn't all that long ago right. uh, you know, yeah. that, that, that that happened. And it's an interesting book. You can get it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and what what fascinates me about this is that the immediate reaction to to that in the general public would be, yeah, they're superstitious or, yeah, they were uh, drinking or, yeah, they're making this up or something along those lines. But when you've got 900 pages worth of testimonies, can you really dismiss it quite so readily? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I, a, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, yeah, that was what I was feeling like when I was there with the Sasquatch t uh, tent meeting <laughs> where everybody's giving their <laughs> testimonies. Yeah, I, I would... Uh, I would probably be, well, I may not, because of the house I grew up in. I grew up in thinking that evolutionary stuff was ridiculous because uh, I think I mentioned this on the last time I was on, but my dad was involved in magic, and uh, I knew that was all real. I'd had experience of that, practical experience. So when I came across reductionist theories of evolution. I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. I thought anybody who believed that, I mean, I was a little bitty kid. I thought the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, uh, you know, and here in this situation, faced with all this evidence of all sorts of liminal beings, the fact that the Bible talks about things like the Lilith and uh, and the satyrs and, and uh, even, you know, the dragons and so forth, and, you know, assumes you know, I mean, it, it has a supernatural characteristics sometimes, but it also seems very physical kind of things. It's in Job 41 and so forth. And, uh, you know, that makes me much more open to paying attention to the universal kind of human testimony of that because, you know, the last analysis, if it's in the Bible, it's true. Right. Yeah. yeah you, you just mentioned Lilith. Uh, Lilith shows up actually in that same verse in Isaiah 34, um, where in the ESV, Lilith is translated night bird for no logical reason. Lilith is a, um, it's a female demon that goes back to ancient Babylon. Right. And, and, and there was belief in Lilith all through that, that region. So why would they assume that in the Hebrew Bible, coming out of that same broad cultural milieu, why would they decide to translate it as Nightbird? It again, it just doesn't it, make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And yeah, I know but, that. But if you're trying to de-demonize the text, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It, yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Um, I, I mean, I think one of the things that you see, and we we are beginning to see, uh, I think, with a lot. A lot of attention from from various you know people interested in this kind of stuff is that what we have in scripture and of course a lot of the the myths and everything else is we have a richer vocabulary to attune to the fact that reality is richer than our reductionisms 
And so this vocabulary, the reductionist wants to do is somehow pull it down from the fullness of reality and its richness and flatten it and make it nothing but an exhibition of something we can control or manipulate or something so familiar that we can't be afraid of it, right? And so this is what scripture will not do. It will not stop talking about the demonic, Satan. It will not stop talking about the fact that in Christ, these things have been overcome, real things, and yet they still want to battle until till they're finally, you know, put asunder. Um, and so, so the fact that reality is that rich means that a fuller kind of vocabulary to reference a lot of the in-between realities, if you will, between just material versus spiritual, um, you're going to see that, and we don't know what to do with it, because, even in the church, because we just want to lump it all into, oh, primitive psychology or primitive kind of ways of you know, describing things or just adopting things uncritically, when actually there may be an antenna to the fact that uh, they had a richer encounter with reality because they were closer to it. Uh, another thing that it, it struck me as we were reflecting upon satyrs is that, of course, uh, imagery uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, it, it's not uncommon to have the devil, Satan, portrayed in this manner. And it, this helps us to see that it wasn't an arbitrary choice, that they had some scriptural basis for doing that. Uh, Lilith, if I remember correctly, in terms of uh, Jewish folklore, uh, obviously this is extra biblical, but... Uh, Lilith was the first wife of Adam who wouldn't submit to him. <laughs> and so they were divorced, and, and that led to the creation of Eve. Now, this is Jewish folklore, and I can't give you chapter and verse because, again, it's just kind of stuff I've picked up over the years. Now, another thing, you know, one of the things that kind of frustrates me about some Tolkien fanatics is they approach the... the uh, the legendarium, like a fundamentalist, uh, and there's a kind of almost a, an, a kind of an enlightenment approach or a, a frame of mind with which they, uh, you know, uh, treat this legendarium. So because Bombadil doesn't fit, he's like a cryptid. He's just he's sort of like he's not supposed to exist. It just annoys them to no end that there's no other reference to him anywhere. And so therefore he's not supposed to be in the book, in the story. <laughs> yeah. And, and since it annoys them to no end, you had to write a book about it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I wanted to rub it in. <laughs> okay. um, you know, Kemper, you mentioned dragons uh, a, a minute ago. Why don't, why don't we turn to that? Um, one of the obvious places to go would be Leviathan in Job or possibly Behemoth in the chapter before. Right. Um, so um, why, do, like, so why, don't, why don't we move over there? Um, what, what are your observations about the text at, the, uh, at these points? Well, I mean, you know, the, the term uh, is used, generally speaking, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be some sort of metaphorical usage, although I think that, you know, use is made of that in, uh, for instance, in the book of Revelation and so forth. But but they uh, they tend to be fairly realistic mentions, or they're mentioned in otherwise uh, realistic kind of straight-ahead descriptive kind of verses, even, you know, praise the Lord, 
And, uh, you know, they worked their way into those lists and so forth. And, uh, you know, just the same one that, that tells the saints to worship God and so forth. So, so there's, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, just like the lion is used of both Christ and Satan, that, uh, you know, that the, the Leviathan and the Tanin and so forth are used, are used symbolically in that way as well. But they, it certainly seems to have its kind of roots in something that was realistic. And I, I know a lot of uh, people are involved in uh, cryptid hunting and cryptozoology, as it's normally called. Uh, you know, they, they tend to think that it was like a, they think the behemoth is something like a, a diplodocus or one of those dinosaurs because of the big tail and everything. Of course, doesn't really fit some of the other descriptions there. I mean, some people say woolly mammoth or uh, behemoth and so forth. And of course, there's, you know, there may well be some kind of truth behind that. I mean, if they all died off or something like that, then they may have started calling other big animals that. But they're also used for like, uh, they, they fit in with descriptions even of Rahab and Tiamat and so forth, these, these big chaos monsters. And so forth, and you could understand how that would be so. I mean, uh, people, I don't think people realize how big a dinosaur, for instance, would be. And I, I don't necessarily think that the <laughs> Tanin are necessarily what we would think of as, uh, as a lizard, but they may have been. But, but from the words described in the Bible, they were huge. So if they moved and are hard to bring down and so forth, I mean, Job 41 makes a lot of that. You could certainly see how they would uh, associate that with chaos monsters and things that destroy things just simply because you know they're huge and you know scary uh, i would imagine yeah there's a psalm that i i i love to use uh in uh a way to kind of startle people and that's psalm 18 where the lord is depicted as a as a dragon uh, <laughs> if, if, if you remember that uh so here's uh how it goes beginning of verse six in my distress i called upon the lord uh, and, uh, he heard me, uh, to, to, uh, my God, I cried for help, uh, from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations. Also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed, uh, forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. You know, hey, you know that's like smog. <laughs> it sure is. I've I've actually preached any number of times, uh, at beginning the sermon by asking uh, if anybody out there believes in dragons. And generally speaking, there's not a hand that goes up. And then when I start going through the Bible and reading those things, and you know that opens up into saying, you know, the world is the world is much broader than we think it is, and uh, you know we need to be led by the Scripture instead of by you know, our druthers, right? Yeah, in Job forty-one, you know, I mean, I mean, I've heard people who talk about you know, behemoth is probably a hippopotamus, but that doesn't explain how he has a tail like a cedar. Okay, <laughs> um, then, then then you get to Job forty-one, and I've heard people argue, well, it's really a descript, poetic description of a crocodile or something <laughs> like that. Except you've got this minor problem that it breathes fire. Yeah. <laughs> and last time I checked, most crocodiles don't do that. Yeah, so. it, you know, it's, a, it's a funny thing which we're talking about. I mean, I, because of my background, I've had a lot of interaction with uh, 
with people who are part of the occult. And, uh, you know, and, you know, because I kind of understood the interior logic of it and everything, I've been able to talk to a lot of them about Christianity in a way that probably most evangelicals wouldn't. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's funny because they understand, a lot of times they understand what the Bible says about stuff like this. And one of their big objections about Christianity is, is that the Christians don't take what their Bible says seriously. Yeah. You know, so it, it ends up the apologetic methods that try to reduce it to some sort of, you know, uh, uh, reductionism and so forth, end up shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason we have so much fantasy stuff going on in our culture now is because people people were made to have mystery and, and know the mysterious and stuff. And, and if and if the culture tries to deny it to them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break out in another way. I mean, of course, we end up in sort of bifurcated dualism. But, but I mean, you know, uh, I've been around to these uh, science fiction conventions and stuff. And, I mean, these are, these are accountants and stuff like that dressed up like characters from, you know, <laughs> science fiction or from Tolkien. You know, right. and, and those lives, those parts of their lives are much more real to them yeah. than the other parts they take they take part in. So it's it's really it's really kind of embarrassing to tell you the truth when you yeah. get a witness to these people. And you know, they get it. You don't have to convince them the supernatural's real. You don't have to right. convince them that what the Bible is saying is what it's saying. I mean, there are other issues and so forth, but but that's uh that's why I've been encouraged that they're has begun to be a lot more interest in that. But, you know, for a Christian, the root of it has to be what saith the word. You know, what does the, the scripture say? And uh, well, well, you're kind of getting at something, uh, Kemper, here that I th- I'd like to reflect on a little bit. Um, and that is what are, where uh, would we like to likely find the last sort of uh, stand of the enlightenment? Let me suggest the church. <laughs> so, so everybody else has re-entered the enchanted cosmos except except us yeah. <laughs> we're still we're still using uh evidence that demands a verdict to try to convert people and <laughs> and they're like and, and you know let, let's be fair to josh mcdowell when he wrote that in the 70s it worked it was oh, very sure, effective sure. Okay. <laughs> but we're we're in a different time now, and I've been arguing lately that you can't use the kind of rational linear apologetic uh, anymore to reach at least the college age students I worked with. You got to make an argument based on things like imagination, things like beauty, things like we got a better story than they do. Yeah, yeah. These are the things that I, I believe are are going to be more effective to reach reach. Uh, people today, particularly the younger people and the people that you're, you've been talking about at these conventions. I think there are two sides to this, too. I think on the one hand, there's a, a, a genuine disillusionment with science uh, for a range of reasons, yeah. um, not only because uh, so many of the things that scientists tell us are so turn out not to be so. And, I, and I'm not trying to make light of science, but just think about, you know, there's this is like a meme. You know, I, I can remember when eggs would kill you. Uh, and now they're like yeah. the, the yeah. superfood, you know. So, so it's just you got thing after now thing like that. Now that's all I eat. But the other, <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then you know you got you got uh, what we just came out of, which was something that many many people believe was really just kind of a, a very uh, corrupt uh, sort of collusion between the government and private industry. 
uh, with regard to COVID. And now, uh, now I'm not saying that that's so. I'm just saying that a lot of people think it's so. Uh, like and then me. we, yeah. And then we've got uh, people who are like, well, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in my life that science doesn't help me understand at all, and they're real. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. One one of the interesting things I started with Leviathan, but another one of the words that comes up that Kemper mentioned is tanin. Um, this is a word that. You know, I, I I have a list of every usage of it in, in Scripture. It is a really slippery word. Um, so when it says in Genesis 1.21, God created the great sea creatures, that's taninim, the plural of tanin. Okay, so you have it as great sea creatures. But then it, when Aaron throws down his rod, it turns into a tanin. We translate it serpent. But it's not the word for snake, for example. That's Nahash that's used in, in Genesis. So it's a different word. And it's not entirely clear exactly what it means. Now, we we assume it's a, a, some kind of serpent. And there are other places where Tanin is used in parallel with serpent. Most of the time, it's connected with water, though, um, which might be appropriate in Egypt with the Nile. But sometimes it also seems like it's a land critter. So yeah. maybe it's somewhat amphibious. But very often it's it's described as a great sea creature. I just um, had a crazy idea. Crazy yeah. idea. We've got a new Bible in the making here. The cryptid Bible. <laughs> <laughs> the most literal translation of the Bible you can find. <laughs> I bet you would sell millions. In English, dragons were called worms. You know? Yeah. That, yeah. It, yeah. It, that was... That was it's just a standard of saying dragon was saying the great worms. Yeah. Right. So yeah. And actually, it's a tanin, I believe, is the one that was used in the psalm that you set to music. Um, Praise right. the Lord from the earth, ye dragons who serve his word. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and that was, that was why I went to that back when, you know. So, yeah, that that's going back a little while now. Although did, uh, didn't Brian, get a lot so of airplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Brian Sauve released a an album of uh, mostly psalms, I guess, that's called "Even Dragons Praise Him," and again, right. it's coming out of those same verses. Yeah, yeah. So, so how you know? It, I I think that you're right, Kemper. That the culture is, has is largely returning to a supernatural worldview while the church isn't. Absolutely so, right. So the question is, how do we get, how do we awaken the church to, you know, not just to try to keep up with the culture, but to actually recognize that Scripture teaches that the world is a lot more complex, more diverse, and frankly weirder than we uh, than we usually give it credit for. How how do, how do you go about getting Christians to to recognize this? I think um, well, things like this like this program are are you know are the beginnings of stuff like that. I think and and even you know Michael Heiser's books, even though they're not specifically about this, but you know that that. Uh, that interest, it seems to me like even that interest is coming from some fringe of the church who has dissatisfied with the kind of reductionist 
approaches. So it seems like there are people out there who are drawing the conclusions, but I, I really think it's going to depend on church leaders, um, you know, digging into the scripture and, uh, you know, and pointing out the kind of conflicts that exist between what we think about when we're not thinking about the Bible and and what the Bible says. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think we live in a, in a terrible kind of dualism, you know, where we compartmentalize biblical stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, part of the part of what you guys are in, involved in in many ways in your books and everything is bringing home the fact that the things the scripture says are part of the real world and affect the real world. And, you know, that seems like it would be an expansion of, you know, not only does the Bible address these issues about the family and the psychology of how you raise your kids and so forth, uh, you know, which are vital, but it also, what it says about the rest of the world is important too. And I think, you know, at least among the evangelicals, the way to do that is is to approach it like that, you know, teaching and so forth. That's where it's it's going to have to begin. And what we have in our favor is, is that most people want to believe in a lot of this stuff, especially at this point in time. That hadn't always been true. But in some ways, the new age thing that happened in the 90s was the beginning of a slide toward that and away from a preference for reductionism amongst a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I think, I wish we could make that switch quick because normally the church is around 20 years behind, yeah. you know, where, yeah. the, where the cutting edge of the culture is. I mean, I, I wish that weren't true, um, you know. And, I, I uh, wonder, yeah, I wonder if this is a part of the, fascination with orthodoxy eastern orthodoxy so you know a lot a lot of guys are drawn to you know uh, orthodoxy because it has a reputation for being more uh, man friendly uh, for different reasons uh, you know leon pottles even brought that out in his church impotent and right. see it in other places um, but there's also this uh, supernatural dimension they so in one sense it's, it's almost like the guy who is so out of touch uh, discovers that now he's like the coolest guy in the room because he never changed what he wore. It's just finally everything came around, <laughs> you know, to that. So like, you know, my, my wife's grandmother was organic before it was cool. And she was, <laughs> she just grew her own vegetables, you know, it was just like, you know, she made her own clothes. So she, you know, she'd be like the coolest gal around if she were still alive, you know? Uh, so I, I think you know, one, one perhaps place where we can see maybe, um, uh, uh, it's, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to put it in the way that's probably not the best way to put it, but a wedge issue would be demon possession, demonic possession, because we've got, I mean, the Lord uh, is casting out demons, right? So even, even Presbyterians have to admit there are demons. So we may not ever think we could ever possibly encounter one, but it's in the Bible. So I got to believe at least it exists. And, and uh, at Touchstone, you know, one of the great things about being a senior editor there is I get to see all the stuff that's coming up for the next issue. And uh, there's, a, there's an article coming out on the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. And there's some there's a writer who did a real deep dive on, you know, uh, what was going on uh, uh, in the story, uh, particularly in the novel on which the film is based. But did you know that it was actually based on a real event 
that a Lutheran pastor, for goodness sake, had to deal with. <laughs> and uh, because he recognized that this is actually a demon here, we need to call them the Catholics because they know what to do. <laughs> so that's actually what happened. <laughs> well, that that's interesting because, you know, here's, here's a similar, well, a, another episode of, I mean, I, re- I remember when I was doing dissertation work on Karl Barth and his conversion from liberalism to moving increasingly towards an orthodox position. And the one of the key moments besides the Romans commentary is that in a little town called Bad Bob, there was a continuous episode of a, a small group of ministers known as the Bloomhearts that were involved in a long period with this young girl who was demonically possessed. And his going and studying that became it left such a conversion impact on him that the kingdom of God as something that couldn't be reduced to the the letter or the material became so central in his reimagine trying to reimagine mm-hmm. under the conditions of the enlightenment how to to dig out from there and i think again we see lewis and others doing it in in their own ways with their own resources and i, I mean i think you're right on to something there Th- there are episodes that that we do, even in the West, stumble upon that we're not going to be able to reduce, and they're going to force us to have to kind of widen, we'll either ignore it, or we'll have to widen our, our range of, of interpretive, you know, categories to start understanding it better. And I think you asked a, a good question there, Chris, about, you know, another aspect of retrieval. And, and I think, again, I've always said, once we get a hold of really what Christians believe about the nature of God, we begin to get a better understanding of the nature of everything else. And when we start to understand everything else, um, not merely as individual, isolated, material things— but very rich spiritual realities, we begin to see that the spiritual is more substantial than the material. It's not that the material isn't real, but it isn't the principle. And because of that, we have a much wider range already to start imagining how to fill out that relationship. Um, And I think we can draw on the whole history of Scripture and the Church to begin doing that. Yeah, I know Glenn mentioned that the Students that he taught, you know, were more oriented. I had much the same experience. I was going on staff at a, a big Episcopal church here, and uh, and I was I was in charge of uh, a particular service that was primarily aimed at uh, college and high school and and somewhat older kids, I guess you'd say. And they were uh, I faced this big this this big uh, committee. And they they were very concerned about taking it in this very contemporary, uh, you know, typical mecca church direction. And I again, I told them at the time, I said, I said, I don't think you guys understand what's going on with the young people, because you know they want mystery, they they want these kind of things. And I said, y'all are y'all are going in exactly the wrong direction. When and thank God, I was able to turn them away from that, but. Uh, but you know that's that that kind of impulse is people do want they they want the world to be deeper they know deep inside themselves even the pagans know that you know Romans one talks yeah. about that they know that there's more there and they they want to experience that on every front I think you know they're afraid to because 
you know, who's, who's telling them different? Who's bucking the enlightenment system? So instead they dress up like fantasy characters and have these big things because that's realer to them than the world they live in. You know, and, yeah. and I, I mean, I understand that impulse. Uh, so I, I think yeah. I think you're dead right about that. I mean, people don't realize how mystical, how mysterious God is, you know. Um, yeah. You know, people in churches are given these cookie-cutter, dumbed-down kind of versions of stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. People who are lawyers and, and doctors and stuff like that or, or who, who are mechanics and are used to work, and then they come in and they're treated like four-year-olds, you know, like oh, you, you can't <laughs> handle the truth. It's too difficult. And they do stuff that's that difficult every day of their lives, you know. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I think you see this. I mean, I've, um, I, you know, I cited before last time we, we, we talked with you, Kemper, Renaissance fairs. You know, the, the, the people who are involved in those are very, in my experience, tend to be very deeply aware of a spiritual dimension that is not recognized broadly. And those things are incredibly popular right now. Um, well, you, you can't you're, admit you're, I mean, you, know, you're, you're, you get tens of thousands of people coming yeah. every time one of these fairs are on, if it's one of the larger ones. You know, so you've got that. Um, with my students, uh, before I left, I had students telling me, yeah, that I had a curse put on me and I had to go to this woman in the, you know, across the street who knew how to deal with those. And so fortunately she was able to lift it. I've, I'm having students tell me things like that. Um, when I did my various, uh, supernatural, uh, courses, uh, witches, werewolves, vampires, uh, uh, that was a grad course. And then I did something similar, medieval magic and witchcraft um, in, for uh, undergrads. I had them regularly doing research into some form of paranormal something, uh, whether it was real or fictitious. Just you know, how does this you know how does how does this shape how we think in society? You know, questions along those lines, and. They just ate it up. They they really were excited about those kinds of assignments, and you don't get students who are interested or excited right. about assignments very often. Exactly. So, how well you know, attended so, were those classes, Glenn? I'm assuming that they were fairly popular. The undergrad ones packed out. Uh, yeah. The grad courses, not so much. They had been thoroughly enlightened uh, by the <laughs> yeah, enlightenment. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know. Whenever I've done. From time to time, I'll do a, a multi-part course on spiritual warfare and, and exorcism and stuff. And, I mean, people come out of the woodwork for those things. I mean, the, four or five times the size of the classes I normally have places are just packed to the gills. I do this thing at the high school that I teach at where they can ask any question they want and uh, every other week, and then I'll, I'll answer the questions. And over and over and over again, there are questions about the supernatural and the, and the demonic, and well, what does the Bible say about this, and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's uh, we ha we have a window. The church has a window here, and uh, you know, I, I'm normally cynical enough to say, yeah, and probably in 20 years, uh, the church will make that change, <laughs> you know, and. Uh, <laughs> Then so, it might be too late. <laughs> so when it comes to what's driving that, in your opinion, Kemper, um, with regard to the openness of young people to the supernatural, 
what's your take? I mean, is it because they're just uh, hoping that the world is bigger than we tell them it is? Or is it because they're facing problems they can't solve any other way? Uh, I, think that, I think it's kind of a combination of that. Um, in, in the first place, there's no, even under the old modernist kind of things, you know, there were, there were, the modernists would preach there was a solidity. You know, at least science and everything was, was solid and, you know, you could work, you could depend on that being there. And, you know, as, as postmodern thought, and I'm not one of these guys who thinks postmodernism is take over everything, but it is true that it's following this impulse of people feeling like there's less and less um, <clears throat> solid way to understand the world. And they, they, they sense that the old world is failing and that there's more to it. And uh, so in some ways, in kind of a reaction to that uh, rejection of, of them telling people there's no such thing as the boogeyman, when they all, you know, deep down inside themselves, especially with the whole postmodern media thing where fantasy and all that kind of stuff has come up, people resonate with that pretty deeply, especially if they're looking for it. So I, I think they're just looking for reality and, and in the breakdown of modernism they're realizing it's got to be somewhere and that's the opposite of where they where, where our culture's been and these kids don't even have enough solidity to to like people who are old enough who live who are living through the dying of the old world they don't even have enough uh, uh what they have are or movies and books and comic books and stuff like that and to them, that seems more real than the real world. So then if they hear that there's an actual reality that's like that, you know, they go ape for it. They, they can't get enough of it because they have an instinct that this is truer. These made-up stories are truer than the, the world that they're offering to me in other places, including the church many times, unfortunately. So, so as a fellow pastor, uh, you know, I think one of the things that – we uh, are afraid of is things kind of running amok, kind of getting out of hand. Uh, have you thought about that? I mean, uh, you know, one, one day you got a kid who's asking a question about uh, is, you know, are demons real? And the next day he's out, you know, uh, putting, right. uh, you know, drawing stars in the ground and experimenting, you know? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No, that's, that's uh that's a reality, I and mean, what I'll generally try to do in those situations is, is uh, you know, is is tell them, look, th this is real, but there, there really is this darkness that wants to eat you, you know, and uh, but you don't have to be ruled by that. I mean, it's actually one of the best places to preach the gospel that I know of, um, you know, and and uh, in my experience, at least the kids who have been under my you know, that I teach in schools and stuff like that, uh, they tend to take that seriously. If if you even know about that, they tend to treat you as kind of a, a big authority on that. You know, especially if, uh, you know, I say that some of the kids over the years in my school, I've, you know, had to drive demons out of their houses and stuff. And that stories like that spread like wildfire. And so, you know, I think if the Christians just acted like, you know, uh, Christians who believed that we had authority over the evil one and so forth, that it would give a tremendous amount of, of authority to what we say about spiritual things. It, it certainly has worked like that 
in my in you know in my experience. Um, so yeah, I think I, we're, we're returning to what many pastors and uh, you know outside the Western world are dealing with all the time. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving people from all over the world as you know as their pastor and and there have been times where like i i had a you know more than one experience where say a new house has been purchased and what's the what's the practice well the, pr the first thing you need to do is have the pastor come over and pray in every room to drive out the evil spirits because who knows what was going on there before you know you bought the house uh yeah. stuff like that and um you know, I, I, I think those of us who who have, uh, you know, an ability to think about this in the way that we've been talking about, you know, go in there. But, it, it, you know, I don't know about you, Kemper, but I didn't have any classes in seminary on, on driving out demons from houses, <laughs> no. kind of working working from, no. you know, the hip here or shooting from the, shooting from the hip. <laughs> I have you know. to say, having the experience of having grown up in a house with a practicing magician you know it didn't seem like it at the time but it it really helped me in terms of the place we are in our culture you know um so that's but, the second time you brought this up kemper do you mind sharing with us a little bit about that i mean you you have some acquaintance with the occult because of this it sounds like yeah my father uh, who became a missionary actually um but he prior to that he was a practicing they call themselves men of power they don't say warlocks or anything like that but but uh they normally take one disciple for their lives and uh sometimes you know a, a woman is involved and they um they're extremely powerful in 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 like for instance my dad was a was a coach and uh and his team would beat the just beat the dog out of the other teams because he would read the opposing quarterback's mind and tell his team what what was going on, and uh, you know I'd seen him drive nails into his into his leg and pull it out and it just heal up immediately. And he would go in people's dreams all the time, and you know just you know all that kind of stuff. And, and when the Jesus movement happened, which I was in one of the earlier uh, portions of, and I went I went to my house, um, you know after I'd had this actually became a serious Christian out of that. It set up a tremendous conflict in my house, uh, not so much between my dad and me, but but the spiritual atmosphere was was like just arcs of lightning and stuff. And my dad eventually repented and uh, confessed his sin before the church because he was a deacon. That was another oh, thing. Wow. He so, do. so this is in the United States. Yeah. Uh, what state? Uh, Texas. This is in so San this Antonio. Is Texas. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of this particular phenomenon, men of power. So this is a, a thing that's still pre uh, going on. Yeah, I saw one. The only one I've ever, ever seen besides my father was uh, was in a, a restaurant here in Houston. And this guy walked in and he had his disciple and a, and a, a woman with him and so forth. And man, he walked in and uh, they, they looked dead over at me because, you know, somehow they could tell that I knew what they were. Uh, but man, they just emanate massive amounts of power, and they're they're really scary. Mm. I mean, they're scary people, you know. So when you when you say you were able to recognize them, you're just talking about uh, this, and not some kind of 
you know, way of dressing or anything? No, no they, they looked uh, very conservative, actually. And the, the, the guy himself, the man of power himself, was, was dressed in a three-piece suit and uh, all this kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, I think I had my back to him. When they walked in, but the but the presence of the hmm. of the darkness was so forceful that I turned around, you know, and looked at them. And well, this this is something I can relate to. I mean, there are episodes in my own life that uh, there was a profound sense that there were more uh, creatures present than were physically in the room, and. Um, but for people who've not had that, I don't know if it's possible to really communicate what that's like. It, that's exactly right. I mean, the first the first thing is you have to be open to the possibility that you, you might there might be such things, you know. Um, and yeah. and if you because if you're not if you if you don't even believe that that's possible, then even if you unless you have some sort of overwhelming experience, you just dismiss it out of hand. Which is understandable. I mean, you know, we, we spend our whole lives being uh, acculturated into ignoring that stuff, especially in the church, which is yeah. really weird. But, uh, but, but you know, that uh, the thing is, not everybody has, you know, is, is spiritually equipped to, to tell that. I mean, my whole family was spooky. That's when my dad was in, in uh, witchcraft and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, but everybody, it's like not everybody's not an athlete either. But you can you can train yourself to be a better athlete, you know, than you, than you are. And the same thing is true, I think, for spiritual phenomenon. If you if you can support that in scripture, then you should be open to the experience of that, you know. And uh, so and related I, to this, I think a person who might be slow to come along on this might say, "Well, the cure then uh, is to not." be able to see it and you won't have a problem. But we know that's not actually the case. There are people <laughs> who, who have influence over us right this very minute that we're not aware of through various media and stuff like that. Uh, and so because we are unaware, we're, we're not, uh, you know, uh, def on the defense, uh, yeah. and being taken advantage. And the same thing can be true in this respect. Uh, sure. You think you're just encountering a person who's got some mysterious charisma, but in fact, what you are being done is, is you're being taken advantage of in some way. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, uh, one, once upon a time in, the in a denomination I was part of, I was the exorcist general and I trained ministers about stuff like this. And, uh, you know, because, and, and even now that I'm, I'm not in that role, I, I don't know how often I get calls from, you know, people know that I'm a reformed conservative minister and stuff. But most of them know that there's something weird about him because you know he deals with demons. <laughs> so then they'll they'll show up with so a demon. That's that rock and roll music that you use. I'm telling you. <laughs> but then they'll end up with a with a demonized person in their congregation, and they'll call me, right? Because they go, "Well, you were the yeah. only guy we knew to call who yeah. who you know who who we at least trusted their theology yeah. and stuff like that." But you know, that, I mean, that happens, guys. It happens all the time. Okay. So. You know, I, I really wish that seminaries would would train their ministers about that. You know, I mean, how many times have you heard stories of people who go on the mission field who haven't been taught about this, and they come home broken emotionally yeah. and mentally yeah. and stuff like yeah. that because they don't they don't know to take this seriously, which is yeah. they should, you know, but you know. You know, Kemper, I wonder how many people 
actually sense things that, uh, and I think you just said this, they sense things that just seem off and they just dismiss it as their imagination. Oh, sure. Um, you know, there, there's a, um, a, a fantasy series that I rather enjoy. It's pretty rough, actually, but by a guy named Jim Butcher. And the premise oh, yeah. is there's a working magician uh, in Chicago who works with the police department. And one of the things they say is, you know, there are all these supernatural creatures running around. But when people encounter them, they don't recognize them for what they are because they just sort of shut it off because it can't possibly be a vampire or a werewolf or whatever. Right. You know, and okay, now it's it's an extreme thing in this particular set of fantasy stories. But I, I think that that is really a... Well, and, and Jim Butcher actually grew up as an evangelical. Um, uh, I think he's on to something about the way people react to, you know, uh, things that just seem off that they, you know, they can't put their finger on, but they don't take it seriously. So here, you know, we, we could probably you know, should wrap this up, but uh, something that occurred to me is is some of the experiences I've had in this respect have been in the most reductionistic settings. Higher education, for example. I, I've been in settings surrounded by people who are thoroughgoing materialists, Marxist, and I'm and I'm and I'm feeling there there's something evil going on right now. Yeah. It's not just yeah. us in this setting. Um anyway, is there anything you want to kind of leave us with, uh Kemper, as we wrap this up? No, I just, you know, I love this program. I don't I don't actually get on the internet much but you guys are always worth it so so I, I hope you'll keep on doing what you're doing because i mean this is a very needful and unusual voice within the reformed community so well, I, I would that. i would hope that people would pay more attention to what y'all are doing and would take seriously you know what y'all are putting forward uh, because the world like i think tom or somebody said the world is a lot bigger than we think it is and a lot weirder and stuff. Right. And yeah. we've got to yeah. take that Amen. seriously. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Tom, Glenn, anything you want to say as we bring this into a close? No, I uh, just want to thank you. I was just going to say, I want to thank Kemper for coming on. Um, again, it's, it's always great to have you, and I really enjoyed the conversation today. Well, it's, it's a great privilege, guys. I really, really enjoy it. Great. Well, yeah, and uh, thanks for me, too. And thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast and getting all the way to the end and getting to the place where I talk about Patreon each week. <laughs> we have a number of people who help us out and support us, and we're really pleased uh, about that. Thank you to everyone who does uh, give to us every month. And if you'd like to join them, there is a link in the show notes for that. Also, we want you to know that we're working on our big tour. Uh, we're heading over to the UK in late May. And, you know, we were just talking about that today, all of the things we have to do to make that happen. And as we find uh, or identify ways that you could help, we'll be sure to let you know. But at least uh, at this point, you can pray for us. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. 
If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.